grief and loss is extremely lonely. And uh, when you add the layer on of, of being a parent who has lost a child, it's even more isolating. And, and it's because for most people, the thought of losing a child is literally the worst that they could imagine. And so therefore entering into that conversation or entering into that space with the one who is suffering, so the one who has lost the child is suffering, and the one who would hope to offer some sort of comfort, and I call that the witness, the witness who would come in, um, the witness can get very, very stuck because they don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. They don't know what to do. They're afraid. They're afraid of the conversation. Welcome to the Let's Start Health podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Haynes. We live in a noisy world, and this space is intended to bring you clarity, enrich your bank of wellness knowledge, and inspire you to kickstart your journey to healing body, mind, and soul. I'll be interviewing industry professionals and bringing you raw, real, and personal stories of healing through gut health, intuitive eating, and the power of the abundance mindset. Thank you so much for tuning in and getting curious. Your journey to healing starts now. Hi there, and welcome back to Let's Start Health, a podcast to help educate and inspire your journey to healing and optimized health. I'm your host, Chelsea Haynes. So as we approach the holidays, I thought it would be nice to do an episode on grief. I must say that I have experienced a lot of loss and a lot of grief from a young age. One of my best friends was killed by a drunk driver at 12 years old, and only a short year and a half later, my boyfriend sadly ended his own life at only 14 years old. Grief has a lot of lessons to be learned. And one thing that I would like to share that I have learned about grief is that it is like the ocean. So at first, you might be drowning in it. This rough and murky water, you can barely keep your nose just above it, just enough to grasp for air, just enough to keep you surviving. Then this weird thing happens, (laughs) this wild thing called life. And the weird part about it is that it just keeps on happening. Time keeps ticking, the world keeps turning, and the tides keep flowing. And though you may still be in the depths of grief, you one day learn that you can actually float. And as life happens, the waves of grief still come at us full force, but maybe they begin to come just a little further apart from each other. So here you are floating on this murky and scary water, and as the waves of grief hit, they knock you back down over and over. But you finally have a tiny bit of space between waves, albeit you possibly might be a bit numb, but eventually you learn a new trick, and that's to swim. So with this new trick, you start to realize that you have the power to actually swim over the waves of grief rather than getting pushed back down under the depths. And soon enough, as you keep swimming through the scary water, eventually you know how to navigate them. And you can start to predict when the waves will come, 
when you know for sure that that big tidal wave is coming at you, this is when you steer towards your true north and just keep swimming. This feels like an appropriate analogy that was shared with me a long time ago, and I am so excited to share today's guest with you. Bevan Mugford is a mom of four and a former real estate entrepreneur with a background in competitive athletics. She has formed a new company called Peach Athleisure Wear. She is really a dynamic, engaging, and highly sought-after public speaker. I really, really enjoyed chatting with Bevan. She travels across the country weekly to deliver powerful personal and professional development presentations and workshops. Unfortunately, I bring her here today so she can share her story of loss. Very sadly, Bevan lost her son, Spencer, last summer when he and a friend went missing at sea. She shares her story with conviction and grace, and I know that anyone who may be experiencing a journey of loss will be touched by her heartfelt advice. As always, may this episode be of service. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to Bevan's very vulnerable and powerful story of courage and strength. And as always, thank you for sharing this episode with that friend, family member, or coworker that really could use a story of strength during this time. so much for being here. And I feel like there, I truly believe there are no accidents in this life. I, I deeply, deeply believe that. And I feel like our paths crossed for more reasons than we can even imagine at this moment. And the opportunity to connect on this deep level is something I've been really looking forward to. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to hold space for you to share your story. So I'd love to go ahead and just hand the microphone over to you and please feel free to share who you are and lead us through a little bit of your story. Sure. And uh, thank you for having me. And I likewise have always believed that there are no accidents. Things happen for a reason. People come into your life at certain times for a reason. And I'm grateful for the chance to know you and have the opportunity to share here today. Hmm. Uh, I can share a, a brief background. It's this call is less about me and more about the story of a lost journey, but I'll share a little context about who I am. I'm a mother of four. I lost my son last year. He was lost at sea. He was 20 years old. More on that in a moment. And I'm also a mother of a daughter and two other sons. I am the daughter of an Episcopal priest <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, the daughter of a professional saleswoman. I have lived across this country in many areas, but predominantly on the East Coast. I spent my childhood growing up moving. And after quite some time in my early adulthood being in one spot, that being the state of Florida, I ended up doing a fair amount of moving in the recent years as well. And uh, along the way, I have had the most blessed opportunity and privilege to be a part of a founding team of a company. And uh, my role, my professional role is head of sales and field development for a women's apparel brand. 
And what I get to do, and that's really what I mean, I get to travel across the country and teach people about practical things like sales and business development. And so I'm a sales trainer. And on the other side, I have the ultimate privilege of also doing personal development training that comes out of the practices and work of positive psychology. So that's a a brief background on who I am. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. There's so much to your background and so, so many exciting things going on. And and I'm super excited to be able to talk a little bit more on the other side of it all. um, As far as your, the founding team that you're talking about. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a fun journey and a fun story there. Awesome. So let me take you back in time. My son Spencer was 20 when he was lost. A little bit about Spencer because it's an important part of the story. Spencer was a child from the moment he was born. (laughs) He was larger than life. Um, He was a child that honestly was so loud and so active that (laughs) I wasn't quite sure what to do with this this boy that came out of me. You know, I was was one of two girls growing up and my first child was a daughter and all of a sudden there was this boy. It's like, whoa, this is a different species. And, uh, and he was cut from a different cloth, that guy. Um, he, he was of, of, he had two speeds on and off. So it was, um, full speed ahead and sleep. That's, that's all that he knew. And as he lived his life, he discovered a, a deep and spiritual passion for the water, which he actually shared with my father and my father experienced his passion for the water through boating and surfing. Yes, my father was a surfing priest. (laughs) And my son developed his passion for the water through boating and fishing. So he, um, as soon as he could figure out how to bait a hook, that kid was fishing. And then once he could figure out how to work a lure, he became an artisan on the water And he was a catch and release fisherman. And it was all about the expectation of what was on the other line? What was I going to be able to catch? Was it something I'd caught before? Was it a new species? Or was there going to be something funky about it? And he would categorize what he caught and he would release. And of course, along the way, having doing most of his fishing in the state of Florida, although he did fish all up and down the East Coast and and in the latter years up in Connecticut, uh, you know, he, he played with all of the creatures, the manatees, the sea turtles, the, the sharks. Oh my gosh, that kid got lots of sharks, <laughs> the gators. I mean, he just, he just loved being outside. And the way that I would, I would sort of help you to picture him in your mind's eye is he was, he was a completely restless soul on the land and completely mm-hmm. at peace on the water. And so it was no surprise that on the evening of the 26th of May, he called me and it was probably, I don't know, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. And we always, we had a routine of checking in, lived about an hour and 20 minutes away from me and checking in for the night. He said, oh, he was at, he was at the rocks and he was fishing with his buddy and they were throwing lines in. And, and it was really the first warm weather that we had gotten that year was a little Indian summer-ish, if you will. The air was warm. The water was still quite cold, Long Island Sound, still quite cold, but 
the air had been warm that day. And uh, so I said, good night. And he said, good night. And I love you. And, and, and an important thought is um, his younger brother was graduating high school the next day. And so I said, Spencer, don't stay out all night fishing. Cause he was prone to stay out all night fishing. Literally mm-hmm. said, you have a graduation you have to get to, and you've got drive time you need to think about. So you make sure that you finish up what you're doing with plenty of time to get up to see your brother's day. Cause this is important. He's like, I know, I know, I know. All right. All right. Good night. So I went to bed, got up the next morning. I was getting ready for my son's graduation. It was May 27th, his younger brother's graduation, my 23rd wedding anniversary. And as I was getting ready, and it was about an hour before the graduation, I looked at it and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna text Spencer. I'm just gonna remind him he needs to be up. So I texted him. There was no response. Oh well, all right, let's you know. That is what it is. So we, uh, I got in the car and started driving. I'm, like, nah, I'm just going to call Spencer. So I call Spencer. And I immediately went to his voicemail. And that was the first sign that something was a little bit off. It didn't ring a couple times. It just immediately went to his voicemail. So I thought, well, that's odd. And then I thought, oh, darn it. You know what? He was out. He forgot to plug his phone in. His phone died. His phone says alarm. Gosh darn it, he's not going to wake up because given Spencer's, his penchant for sleeping in, the child was going to sleep in. (laughs) So I went to the graduation and and no surprise that he didn't show up at the graduation because I thought his his alarm just was not on, so he wasn't going to wake up. So we did the graduation, we went home, we did the brunch, and about halfway through the brunch, I thought, you know what, by now he should be up, even without an alarm. So I called him again, straight to voicemail, and then that's when I started getting this feeling in my gut, and I, and I looked at Spencer's dad, Charlie, and I said, we need to go down there. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's just that he's sleeping, slept through an alarm. I said, but now I'm worried, and we need to go down there. So as we were driving down and we were talking and it was sort of like you talk because you're like, I'm being an over um, protective mother. I'm overthinking it. I'm, I'm being anxious for no reason. Maybe I'm mad at him because he didn't show up at his brother's graduation and he was irresponsible and I was plugging in his phone. So we were sort of just talking and, and, um, and, and about a street before his street where he lived on his apartment, I thought to myself, well, what if I turn the corner? And his car's not in the driveway. What then? Hmm. So he turned the corner and his car wasn't in the driveway. And that's when I knew something was really wrong. So the first thing I could think of was to go visit his fishing haunts. I didn't know them all, but I knew some of them. So I started, I knew where the rocks were, where he, where he had said he had been fishing the last I spoke with him. So I went to the rocks his car wasn't in the parking lot and we started looking in different places and, um, and, uh, that's when I called my kids. First I called my daughter and my daughter said, and this is after we had kind of gone to maybe 30, 45 minutes looking at his different fishing hunts down by the shore. And, uh, and my daughter said to me, mom, Spencer's missing. I said, no, no, 
No, I just don't know where he is. He's not missing though. She said, mom, we need to go public and we need to tell people Spencer's missing so they can help us figure out places where he might be. You don't know all of his fishing spots. And that's when I sat there and I had this reckoning moment where I was like, if I tell the world, well, then it's real. Mm. I don't really want it to be real. I said, I don't want people to know that Spencer is missing. And I was like, mom, this is not about you and being embarrassed that your child is missing. This is about your child being missing and you need help. It was really, really hard. It was really hard to give my daughter permission to post on Facebook, which is what she did, that Spencer was missing and we didn't know where he was. And that's also when we called the police. And it was one of those moments where it's like, you, you, you are in your body, but you're outside of your mm-hmm. body. And you're thinking to yourself, is this when parents call the police? Mm-hmm. And literally, Charlie and I looked at each other and we're like, are we allowed to call the police? I mean, isn't there this 24-hour rule? And then, of course, what do you do in that moment? Like, he immediately pulled out his phone and he Googled, like, can I report a missing person within 24 hours? He's like, look, you can call. You can report. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we called. And uh, the police said, well, do you know where, <laughs> where he is? And I was like, no. Like, we, we, we told them all the different places where we had looked. And what's interesting is, and, and I'm sure there's, there's good reason, but what happens is they send out the police to actually revisit all the spots where you've been. So it's not like they take your word for it. They go and do their own investigation to all the spots. Meanwhile, I'm like, well, you're wasting time. I've already been there and he's not there. And so you start getting in this agitation mode. You start to move from, I I cannot believe this is where we are into honestly, your brain starts going like everybody need to be putting a hundred percent of their effort into finding my kid. You pretty quickly flip to um, like, don't dilly dally. Like this is my kid's life and it's cold. Like it had started to get cold that day. So the Indian summer of the prior day had started to turn into a very typical raw spring day for new England. The wind had picked up um, the rain hadn't started yet. That started later, a little spitty rain, but the wind had picked up and it was cold. And by now I was feeling like we we're starting to, we were going to lose daylight. So it was like, your concept of time gets very skewed. But if I had to take a stab at what time it was, it was probably like three thirty, four o'clock at this time. And, um, and so Charlie and I were sitting in the car and we're trying to figure out, and you know, we, we couldn't find a point of where he was. I felt like in my heart, he was on the water. Cause I know Spencer, you know, he's a captain. He was, he was a f- fisherman, you know, he was, he was, he knew these waters. I felt like he was out on the water, but I didn't know whose boat he would be on because his boat was in Florida. So it wasn't like he could have taken his boat out. And I said to the police, like, why aren't you calling the Coast Guard? And they said that we have no evidence that they're on the bot on the water. We can't call out the Coast Guard if we don't have a point of departure from land. And uh, so that's when Charlie said, I wonder if Spencer posted something on social media last night about where they went. So of course, you know, kids, kids don't use Facebook. So that wasn't an option. I looked on Instagram, nothing on Instagram. And then I said, I wonder if he was on Snapchat. So I'm not on Snapchat. So I called my, my son 
the one who had graduated. And I said, Grayson, did Spencer post anything on Snapchat last night? And he said, he was like, hold on. And he looked and he goes, actually he did. And Spencer had posted at roughly two o'clock in the morning, a picture, three pictures of himself paddling some sort of a vessel. We couldn't tell from that picture what it was, paddling like with a um, kayak paddle, a picture of the shoreline, and then a picture of the friend that he was with um, inside some sort of structure. And so we, now we had three pieces of evidence that the kids, so now we knew Spencer was not alone. He was with someone who's with his friend, Sophia, and um, that they were out on the water. We didn't know what vessel they were on. We didn't know where they had departed from, but we knew they were out on the water. So then we could call in the Coast Guard. And at that point, we still hadn't located Spencer's car, but now that we knew he was with Sophia, there was a second vehicle to start looking for. So they looked for Sophia's vehicle and they located her vehicle on the campus of the school where Spencer um, had attended. And uh, that's when they brought out the dog teams and they took a dog at the car, they scented the car and they had the dog take off to figure out if the kids had taken off from the school from Avery Point. And the dog immediately, I mean, I watched it. I was right there. I watched that dog, that dog took off so fast and led them right down to the boathouse. And uh, they had a point of departure. And once they had a point of departure, the search could really commence. Wow. I'd love to just pause there for a moment and just say thank you for sharing that. And what a beautiful testimony to Spencer's, like you said, deep and spiritual passion for the water and all the things that he loved in his life mm -hmm. and his vibrancy, you know, I can hear it in your voice and I, I can picture it. And uh, those waters, you know, I have chills all over my body and my husband and I are yacht crew. And I shared this with you privately, but the last four years, every summer we've been in the med, we've sailed around Europe and this summer for the first time, Ever, we were in the Long Island Sound and we navigated those exact waters. And I very much am familiar with those random warm spring days and also the chill that creeps in at night. And I just feel so deeply connected to your story. And I just really want to say thank you for sharing it. And you know, that moment, you know, the, the progress of, of walking us through, like you said, that agitation, really the disbelief is really where it started, yeah. you know, not, yeah. not wanting to admit that this was true. And obviously not because of, I would say it's more so less embarrassment and more, and more so just, is this real? <laughs> like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> it, yeah. It, it was definitely taking the, the disbelief and the unreality and making it real Mm -hmm. And it was also, um, honestly, Chelsea, at my core, I'm such a private person about my private life that it felt very exposed. And, yeah. and, and, and it was just, you know, it's, 
this is just a false alarm. This isn't a real thing. And nobody needs to know about this because it will be resolved in just a few hours. And so why are we making such a big fuss about it? And Mm -hmm. it's that side of your brain fighting with the other side of your brain that's like, that says, no, 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 something's really wrong here. Yeah. And you had, like you, like you said, those, those gut feelings, it's our head versus our heart, Mm, right? Exactly. It started in that moment when you said to your husband, we need to go down there. Maybe he's just overslept, but we need to go down there. And that it's those moments that so often we overlook so often we write it off because we think, oh, just like you said, maybe I'm just being overprotective. Maybe this is excessive. You know, it's our brain starts to get in the way and delegitimize, if that's a word. <laughs> I think it is now. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Those gut feelings yeah. that we have. And I mean, it again is so much of everything that I am so passionate about is teaching people really to lean back into that. And I can imagine it would have been extremely frustrating when those gut feelings for you started saying, you know, he's on the water, Mm -hmm. he's on the water. We need to call the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, time might've been a bit warped, but. Well, by the time, by the time the search really commenced, the sun had gone down. Uh, yeah. The wind had picked up tremendously. There was um, spitting rain. It was cold, mm. and uh, and they and they and they started the search and they ran it through the night. And we sat on the campus in the student center, and uh, and you just listened to the helicopter making passes overhead, and you can see the the smaller boats that are searching the inland crevices and you can see the I couldn't actually see the coast guard I'm sure I'm screwing this up but cutter or whatever they put out there the bigger vehicle uh, the bigger vessel out there that was um, running the grids and uh, and so they ran it through that entire first night and into the next day we stayed on campus as long as we could and then they said go home this is not helpful and uh the next day, the, the Coast Guard, the, the lead on the Coast Guard um, called us and asked us to come in. And it was probably, again, time is a little skewed, but one noon, one o'clock. And so they hadn't yet been searching a, four, a full 24 hours yet, but they were still out there. And uh, they called us into this meeting room, and there were, as I remember, four or five. Uh, leaders from different departments, uh, two from the Coast Guard, one from one of the Connecticut Department of, um, and again, I might be messing this up, but Environmental Protection, or some, the, 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 the Connecticut arm that um, really does the, inter- the internal waterways, not the actual sound. And then you had um, police, you had the Groton police there. And, um, and we sat down and we were in the room with uh, the parents of Sophia as well. And they gave us each a packet and um, they started showing us where they had searched the grid, what had searched the different vehicles they had put out there. And they started to explain to us what um, efforts had been made to find our children. 
And it was in that moment where that voice inside my head, that agitated voice, I can remember looking at them going, why are you wasting my time proving to me that you're looking for my child? I know you are. Go back out and keep looking for him. You don't need to prove to me that you're looking for him. I know you are. Mm. And uh, I didn't say that, of course. I thought that. And, and they continued to go on. And all of a sudden, a light turned on in my head. And I said, oh, my God. They're proving a case for calling off the search. Mm. They're showing what they've done so they can justify ending the search. And right around the time that that sort of dawned on me, they started to roll into how much longer they would continue the act of search and, and when they would stop. And uh, that's when I knew. They talked a lot about hypothermia, talked a lot about currents. They talked a lot about... Um, how far they had extended the grid and the improbability that the kids would be alive, mostly because of hypothermia. The waters were very cold still. Mm. So we stayed on campus again this day and they continued the search into the night. And they, um, again, time could be a little off, but they called off the search sometime late in that evening. And they finished and uh and it was done how did they actually give you that news that they called us and they called us they were uh, the coast guard was wonderful mm. uh the commander and and then and there was a second second individual as well they were very very good uh they know what they're doing they have a very hard job mm. they delivered hard news well and, and they they parsed it out in increments that we could handle mm. and uh and they called us personally and what was that like for you receiving that phone call that at this point they had not found anything they hadn't found the kids or the boat and they had let you know that you know the there was a high improbability that it wasn't going to happen what what was that moment like for you I think it was confirming what I already knew in my gut. Mm. Yeah. And it's this interesting wrestling match again in the brain that happens, which is, I get it. It's completely improbable. The kids are gone. And then there's the other part of your brain that says, but Spencer was a beast. <laughs> that kid was so strong so strong mm. and he knew water so well this is not an inexperienced person on the water he knew he knew waterways he knew he could swim very strong swimmer um so there's this part of you like but maybe they made it mm. i just haven't found them mm. so there's that wrestling match that happens in there <sighs> So let's take a step forward now. So mm -hmm. you've received this news and then there was a waiting period before any more yeah. news came. And maybe we can start with the news and then talk about that time period in between. 
when was the next time you heard anything about anything? Well, really what happens at this point is if you, if you make the decision to accept Mm. your child is gone, then you actually have to start getting into the practical space of planning a memorial. Mm. Um, You can't plan a burial. You don't have a body, but there's a reason why we do things like memorial services. People need to come together during this time of grief and trauma and we need community so we started to plan his memorial service and uh, and we didn't hear anything nothing at all and uh we have a home in uh, at the rhode island shore and it's where spencer had spent his summers as a child another area of waterway that he knew well and uh, we have a family family burial plot in Rhode Island, even though we didn't have him, we decided to do the memorial service in Rhode Island. And uh, on the 13th day that he was missing, in the afternoon, the very day before his memorial, we got a call. And we actually got a call from Spencer's captain from the commercial fishing vessel that he worked on. And uh, his captain said, I just want to let you know, I just heard a voice over the shared channel way that the captains who fish the sound use, that a young male's body has been found in the sound. I don't know if it's Spencer, but I just wanted you to know. And uh, about two hours, maybe an hour later, we got a call from the Coast Guard confirming that they had, uh, that they had found Spencer. Wow. <laughs> I grew up in Narragansett, Rhode Island, and my father was a deep sea dragger out of Galilee. This is just so Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it is so bizarrely familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So they had confirmation. It was him. And I'm assuming you had to go down and identify him? <laughs> it's one of those interesting things too. Um, so, so Spencer and his friend Sophia just a few weeks before had gone and gotten tattoos together. <laughs> mm. um, he hadn't had a tattoo before that. And uh, he, in fact, he was afraid I was going to get mad at him. So he didn't <laughs> show me for a while. And uh, he finally confessed and showed it to me because he had gotten it on the inside of his biceps. And, uh, and it's amazing. Tattoos end up being a very definitive identifying marker mm. on a body. And uh, he had been at sea for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily a situation where we could identify the body, but we could identify the tattoo. Yeah. So did you follow through the next day with the memorial or did you decide to put that on hold? And Oh no, we went forward. We went forward with it mm-hmm. and it made the memorial, um, feel more, uh, more real and more purposeful. Mm. Yeah, we are leaving tomorrow to go to my father-in-law's funeral. We lost him one week ago today, 
mm-hmm. after a cancer diagnosis only three months ago. Oh my goodness. I'm so very sorry. Thank you. It definitely feels strange. And you said something, you mentioned how we need community during this time of grief and trauma. And, Mm. you know, I feel blessed and this, this might be, this might sound strange at first to hear, but I I do feel blessed that I've experienced grief and trauma Mm. many times in my life. Um at a young age and then many times since then. And I am seeing now, well, first off, reliving grief of death for the first time in many, many years, which for a while there, it felt like it was a very constant thing. And also witnessing loved ones who have not had that experience yet. And it's a very interesting concept of grief and one thing I was telling my husband was you know how how important this time is moving forward to have that closure for ourselves and also to celebrate his life and I'm sure you can speak on that a little bit how you know this how how grief it requires a village right Mm. And I'd love to yeah. ask a little bit about that. You know, what what is your, you know, since this experience and maybe others you've had, I'd love to share, if you don't mind sharing a little bit of maybe your understanding of grief and loss and how we process it. And, and maybe for anybody listening to this, you know, some that might be experiencing grief, mm-hmm. you know, what might be some helpful things that you can maybe think back of and think, you know, at that time where I was really, what I like to say, like in the ditches, you know, mm. in, in in the trenches of grief or drowning in yeah. grief. I always talk about grief as relating to water, of course, how mm. appropriate. Mm. Um, but when you're drowning in it, you know, what would you, what would you share on that? Yeah. Um, I would start by a, a raw statement, which is this. Grief and loss is extremely lonely. And uh, when you add the layer on of, of being a parent who has lost a child, it's even more isolating. And, and it's because for most people, the thought of losing a child is literally the worst that they could imagine. And so therefore entering into that conversation or entering into that space with the one who is suffering, so the one who has lost the child is suffering, and the one who would hope to offer some sort of comfort, and I call that the witness, the witness who would come in, um, the witness can get very, very stuck because they don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. They don't know what to do. They're afraid. They're afraid of the conversation. Mm. And, and as well-intentioned as they may be in feeling like, well, I might say the wrong thing, so therefore I won't say anything, people end up taking a step back from others in this raw place of loss, not because they want to contribute to the pain, mm-hmm. but because they don't know how to help in the pain. And it's hard. And so... I would first say that, that at its core, at its nature, loss and death is completely isolating. It's very, very lonely. Mm. 
which means that we have to work even harder to create community around it and to create conversations around death. Because honestly, Chelsea, every single email, text, phone call, letter, even when I saw somebody in person started with that statement, I don't know what to say. There are no words. And as I heard this consistently and consistently, and you have to remember at my core, I'm a teacher, I'm a trainer. And, and you can't help yourself when you're a teacher and a trainer, you just start to see patterns. <laughs> and I saw this pattern <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, and, I, and I stopped myself. It was probably like four weeks in and I stopped myself and I said, do we really not have the words? Are there really no words? Mm. Or do we simply not know the words because nobody taught us them? Because if you think about it with me, when you think about the important things that your parents may have taken the time to teach you, the harder things, <laughs> the birds and the bees, <laughs> how to balance the checkbook, mm -hmm. you know, the important adulting thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if you were lucky, lucky, you got taught those things, right? <laughs> you got taught those things. But there was nowhere in the parent play playbook where it said, oh, mm. and when life brings you to your knees, loss and death, mm. here's how you talk about it. We don't get taught that. And honestly, mm. it's, it's, it's not just the familial structure, it's the education system. This is not proactively talked about in school. Not even in our faith institutions do we proactively teach how to talk about death. To be sure, mm -hmm. all of these entities and institutions are there to support us after the trauma, but there is no proactive learning before trauma to help people learn how to talk about it. And it's both for the sufferer as well as the witness. So part of where my loss journey has gone, and I do call this a loss journey, and it is not linear. It is not linear. It is a journey. And it is a journey where you are carrying a very heavy burden on your back. And it requires community with you to help shoulder that burden. And the way that that community can come in is by learning that we actually do have words to say. We do. I've studied this by looking at what words have mm. people offered to me that brought me comfort because they're there. We just now need to teach others of them. And if I may, I'd love to share with you a few thoughts about how, Please. And, this is, and this is predominantly for those who might be listening who are wanting to be a comfort to one who may be traveling this lost journey. So it's the person who says, I don't know what to say. So therefore I'm more inclined to say nothing and take a step back, but I don't really want to. I actually really want to be there to support, but I just don't know how. So the first mm. that I would offer on this is we actually do know how, and it's actually kind of obvious, but honestly, sometimes the most obvious things are the hardest things to see. And that is the words of a story. If you have a story to share about the one who was lost, share it. And don't fool yourself into thinking the story you have is not that important or that you didn't know that person well enough to write it down. Because I have to tell you, Chelsea, 
My neighbor, whom I've never met, wrote me a letter about Spencer knocking on her door and shaking her hand and saying, if you ever need any help, I'm here to help you. I didn't know he did that. She met him for 30 Mm. seconds and she wrote me a story that fed my soul in the darkest, deepest suffering. I have to tell you, I opened up her letter and I probably bawled for an hour. And sometimes you have to remember that crying through loss is not innately a bad thing. It's a release. And it's this moment of my son Mm -hmm. gave a moment of thoughtfulness to a stranger. And she cared enough about me, a stranger, to write it down for me. It's a moment of express shared humanity. And it was her being on that lost journey with me, even though I'd never met her. Because we had just moved into this house. Mm. And then, of course, his, his best friend who had been his fishing buddy, his soulmate, who it's funny enough to, to, if you knew them, you would say, how the heck are these two kids best friends? Because they could not have been more different. I mean, as I said, Spencer was larger than life. <laughs> you knew when Spencer was in the room. And, uh, and his best friend was really in so many ways the exact opposite. And yet they were united through that shared spiritual connection to the water. And, uh, and his best mm-hmm. friend eulogized him. And his best friend's mother sent me a four-page, single-space typed letter full of the memories that she had of the boys. And some of the memories I knew, some of them I didn't, but it didn't really matter because I got to hear them through the lens of her viewing and, and through sharing the stories as she saw them. She actually answered questions that I had never verbalized. Like, how the heck are these boys friends? They're so different. <laughs> how does Brian even put up with Spencer in his big space in the room? And, uh, and, she, and she was able to answer those unspoken questions for me in the letter that she wrote. So the first statement that I really want to share with those hoping to offer comfort to the lost traveler is you do have words and they're the words of a story, no matter how insignificant, share it. And the second part of that really, that, that probably comes to your brain to, to ask the question is, well, what if you didn't know the one who passed? You can't share a story if you didn't even meet them. And I would share with you that there are actually words here as well. And if I may, I'd like to illustrate it with a, with an additional story. So, um, I shared that water is a spiritual part of my father's life and uh, Spencer's life. It's also part of my life. I was not a boater nor a surfer, much to my father's chagrin. Uh, (laughs) However, I was a swimmer and I, I swam uh, middle school, high school, and into a career, uh, collegiate career. So water was always a part of my life in that space. And during my teen years, uh, my summers were sounded like this, AM workout, morning swimming lessons, afternoon lifeguarding, late afternoon swimming lessons, PM workout, <laughs> go home, eat, sleep, rinse, repeat. I mean, this is what I did every single day of the summer, all of my, all of my teenage years. And one of these summers, I had um, these two delightful little boys come for a semi-private lesson, and they were brothers. And just picture them in your mind's eye, like little toe-headed boys, and they're like three and four, and they had 
you know, matching swim trunks, the whole nine yards that you could imagine. And, <laughs> and the youngest one was particularly memorable because um, he wore glasses and he didn't just wear any glasses. He wore round red rimmed glasses, sort of like, yeah, <laughs> I need glasses at three years old and I rock my red rims. I mean, he was just unbelievably adorable. And there were sweet little boys that, you know, when they got in the water and I'd ask them to do something, they'd look at me and they'd nod their heads and say, yes, Miss Bevan, yes, Miss Bevan. And they'd do it and they were just sweet. And they, and they stuck with me in memory. And uh, fast forward time, the, the town I grew up in was, was a town I returned to to raise my family. And, uh, and it was a small enough town that people knew each other, but a large enough town that you didn't necessarily know the inner happenings of each person. And, and you know, years had gone by and my children were significantly younger. And um, so I knew of the family, but I was not closely connected to the family. And so that's why it took me quite some time, several months, in fact, to hear that the oldest boy in that duo had taken his life in his early 20s. Mm. And I remember hearing the news these several months later, and I thought to myself, I don't know what to say to her. If I say mm. something, will it be ripping the scab off the wound that has started to heal? Do I even acknowledge that I know that it was a suicide? What do I say? Mm. And because I couldn't figure out what to say and I was afraid, I didn't say anything. I didn't send her a letter. I didn't send her a text. I didn't pick up the phone and call her. I was afraid. So fast forward time and we lost Spencer. And that mom reached out to me and she sent me a note. And her note started by saying, Bevan, we lost our boys through different circumstances, but I know where you are because I have been there and I am there. And then she shared something with me that is so deeply profound. She said, Bevan, we didn't get a chance to know Spencer, but I have learned that when you didn't get to know the person who was gone, these are the words you say. Oh, Spencer, I wish we could have known you. And when I read that, in that moment, my entire body was filled with a wave of goosebumps. And even in the retelling of it, it happens again. Because she's right. That's what you say, because there's a deep-seated fear in the parent of a child who is lost that the world will forget that their child ever existed. And for someone to say, I wish I could have known your child. Well, that's a statement that, they, that, that my child was important enough and impactful enough to have been known. Mm. And it fills the soul of the sufferer. So there are words. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Even in my own grief, you know, it's, it's times where sometimes I, I say to myself, I don't even know what to say to myself. <laughs> you know? well, wait, and, can I speak to that for just a second? Maybe as a closing thought, can I speak to that? Yeah, please. 
I would offer that sometimes we don't have words because we're not supposed mm. to. Yeah. And in, and in that moment, what our role is for ourselves and for others who are in a loss period is to simply bear witness. And uh, I learned about this concept of bearing witness when I received an email about 24 hours after Spencer was, was lost. So the Coast Guard was still running its grids and uh, it was from a professional, dear professional friend of mine. And she wrote me a message and she said, Dear Bevan, we stand by bearing witness to your loss. Just one sentence. But beneath mm-hmm. it, she defined bearing witness. And bearing witness is really defined as largely nonverbal, sitting and, to use some of your words, holding space, to be a compassionate observer of another person's moment. And here's the key part. It's making the profound decision to not try to fix it for that person. It is to be with her, stand beside her, shoulder shoulder part of the burden for her and bear witness and in those moments we don't need words we just need to be in community and connected to one another mm-hmm. it couldn't be more true and i'm so i'm so glad that we got to that point too cuz i was going to be sure that we got there and it couldn't be more right you know if if you're listening to this and and really just feel like you don't know what or how to say if the words aren't coming out just simply be just simply be and oftentimes i find that you know we try like you said with good intentions to mm-hmm. you know, we want to help the other person you know the the per, the sufferer we want to ease their suffering but in doing so oftentimes it just makes it worse And by just witnessing and being Mm -hmm. and yeah, holding that space and and shouldering that burden, that's, that's really what it's about, you know, coming together and Mm -hmm. lifting each other up. I love that. This is really, really, really helpful. So just one last little question before we kind of circle it all back around to kind of how have you alchemized this and what are you doing now? I would love just to take maybe one or two minutes, and this is, might not be enough time for this loaded question, but I'm curious, in a situation like this where there is a loss of a child, and I would imagine that a family dynamic, you know, we all grieve very differently. How do you feel that this has affected your family dynamic? I think I can actually answer it. Um, I think I can answer it for you in a way that is helpful. Spencer really represented something different to each member of the family. So for his older sister, he was her charge. (laughs) And she was always trying to keep him to play inside the bounds, (laughs) even though he wanted to color all over the place outside the bounds. So to some extent, she, she lost some of her role in the family of caretaker of a child who honestly needed her. And she thrives, we all thrive, being needed. So she lost that. Um, For his brother, who's closest to his age, they're 21 months apart, um, he lost a best friend 
you know, these kids played football together. They lifted weights together. They played together. Um, he lost a best friend. And for the younger, my youngest son, Spencer in many ways was his hero. Spencer was not afraid of anything, not afraid of a thing. And if the, mm. you know what hit the fan, everybody could turn and, and, and look for Spencer and he would fix it. He could fix anything. He could lift anything. <laughs> 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 anything. You know, it's like science project time. Who do you go to? Mom? No, not mom. Go to Spencer. He'll figure out how to make that thing that you need to make. So, so he, um, so he lost his hero. And then, of course, for Charlie and myself, we lost our son. And uh, we had 23 years of marriage. We are no longer married. Um, on some level, this is part of that journey. And uh, it deeply impacts a family. And mm. you come together. And you support one another the best you can as you walk your own individual path of grief, but you allow each other to be in proximity and support, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important and really helpful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So let's round it out here. And, and I'd love to have the pleasure of asking you, you know, it's been a year, a little over a year. And though this has maybe been sewn into the blanket that you are now, may I ask how you have, what are you doing now? How has this been alchemized in your life? Share with us a little bit about Everything that you're doing now, maybe this has been fuel in some way for what you are up to now. Yeah. So um, as I said at the beginning, at my core, I'm a very private person. So it may shock you to realize, to, for me to say that um, mm -hmm. I now speak publicly about death and all sorts of things that I never did before. And so um, the first thing is that this has taught me that vulnerability is a strength. It's not a weakness. Mm -hmm. And that by sharing, we connect deeply to each other in our shared humanity. And I've also realized that because death is such a hard subject to talk about, because I can talk about it, not only should I talk about it, but I actually feel duty-bound to talk about it. And so I started writing a Saturday meditation and I write this pretty darn religiously every week, unless I'm really on the road and a hard travel schedule. And I don't have the, the, the mind space or the emotional capacity to write on this. Mm. And I write something about my lost journey. It's a learning. It's a question that I've been asked. It's a moment from the time of his loss. Um, it's all about, and so many people have said to me, I'm so grateful you wrote about this because I was too afraid to ask you those questions, but I wanted to know. So I do talk about raw things. I do talk about real things. And at the end, my goal always is for the person reading to be able to walk away uplifted and not pulled down into a dark, deep place. So this is not about, here is my grief. Let me vomit it on the floor in front of you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is very much about here is my lost journey. Here is something I learned. 
take it and learn from it too. Because even if you're not on a lost journey today, death is a guaranteed part of life. And you may never have to bury your child, but you may know somebody who does. And you may know somebody who has had to bury a spouse. And almost certainly most of us will have to bury our parents. Mm. So knowing how to talk about death and sharing the learnings has really become my mission and part of Spencer's legacy. That's beautiful. So where can somebody go and find your Saturday meditations? The best place to go is on Instagram. I have a public Instagram account. It's just Bevan. There aren't many Bevans in the world. This is to my advantage. (laughs) (laughs) So it is Bevan. That's B as in boy, E, V as in Victor, I, N, with a dot, and then Mugford. So think a mug of coffee and a Ford car, Mugford, Bevan Mugford. And you can follow me there. And I write on uh, every Saturday about my lost journey and then uh, other postings throughout the week are often about personal and professional uh, development topics. So, so the weekday posts have value as well, but I'm not, <laughs> I try very hard to not be in a, in a heavy space of lost journey on the other days of the week. Um, but, but also always in a thoughtful space on what's the learning. That's, that's really what I ask myself basically every day. What's the learning today? Mm-hmm. Well, you and I very, very much resonate on that. And, you know, I I think in digging into your story a little bit after we met at an entrepreneurial networking event, I thought, well, shoot, this, you know, the intention of the, you know, the Let's Start Health podcast is literally healing through vulnerability. And Brown has taught me that with vulnerability, shame cannot exist. And really when that vulnerability is met with empathy and I hope that this was a time that was met with empathy. And I know that whoever is listening to this will also meet you in that same space, you know, and, and you mentioned getting down, you know, the words that I would use is just, just get in the trenches with me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's yeah. roll around in the That's dirt right. a little bit. That's right. Let's get a little dirty. <laughs> yeah. We can, we can crawl out together only when we're ready and it yeah. doesn't have to be rushed and it doesn't have to look a certain way. Yeah. And we can do it together. Right. <laughs> and community. And community. Exactly. And I'd love to just round it out with truly Bevan. I, I really wish I could have known Spencer Mm. and I mean that deeply. And I feel like after this conversation and after getting to know you, I truly do feel like I know him. Mm. So thank you. Thank you for sharing his light and his story and your story as well. And may it be of service. So thank thank you. you for it all. Thank you for having us. take a quick moment to give you, my community of listeners, some genuine appreciation. I know how valuable and precious our time is in today's world of productivity, and I couldn't be more grateful for yours today. If you feel that this episode was of value to you, I would be even more grateful if you were to share it with your people. Go ahead and copy and paste that link into messages, the episode into your Instagram stories, and send it on over to that person in your life who might need this boost of inspiration today. Don't forget to tag the podcast handle Let's Start Health and my personal account, The Yogi Yachty, so we can have all the fun connecting, building community, and sharing all the things. 
Thank you again. And remember, be curious and unwavering on this journey to health.